More and more people are uploading their personalities to social media and becoming professional influencers. On today's episode, we talk about a big sign that the professional influencer industry is getting, well, more professional. It's now scrambling to find legal liability insurance. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. Influencers. They're hard to define, but you know them when you see them, specifically when you see them on social media. Hello, hello. Here are three photo ideas for your Instagram that aren't just selfies to spice up your feed. Let's do it. And now the social media influencing is a pretty big business at this point, projected to exceed $21 billion this year, according to data from the firm Statista. That's double what it was just four years ago, and there are signs that this brand new industry is growing up. One of those signs is the topic of today's episode. Influencers and the brands that hire them are frequently having to insure their legal risks. Bloomberg Law reporter Daphne Jong just came out with a story about the market for influencer insurance policies and how the pricing for those policies doesn't quite match up with the reality of making endorsement videos from your dorm room. I wanted to get into why this is, but first I asked Daphne to explain to me what even is an influencer? You know, I always find it very hard to find a formal definition of influencers. I would say somebody who has, you know, at least 10,000 followers and somebody who has an impact, who comments on the product they use or the TV shows and they have to have a lot of audience engagements. And literally my following is all men. Like it's, I hate it. In the beginning I liked that because, well not liked it, but I was like engagement, engagement. But now- And that can create potential venue for companies who want to promote their products. That's interesting. So it's not just someone who has a lot of followers. It's that they have a lot of followers and people, I guess, uh, respect or at least care what they think. Exactly. I think, uh, for example, on TikTok, if you have a video that has more than 10 million views, TikTok will pay you uh, a few hundred dollars. So you do earn some money if your audience click rate or engagement rate goes up. Um, And on the other hand, that seems to be a very good venue for companies nowadays to do advertisements. And before our listeners go out and, you know, uh, create a TikTok account and start posting their own TikToks, I imagine that very, very few, vanishingly few uh, TikToks actually achieve that level of of engagement, right? Well, you never know. It depends on the topic. You know, know, sometimes, you know, there could be just somebody you know, in their dorm, in their college dorm, suddenly just uh, rise to fame. And we heard so many stories like this. I'm really bored, so I'm going to tell you all the things you need for your college dorm. Get ready. These cups for filling up your Brita. These bowls and the plates from Target because they're literally so cheap and they save your life. And then there could be, you know, this potential great revenue stream. For example, like, a, you know, Coca-Cola contacts you if you or some other companies, you know, you just place this bottle in front of you your video and then maybe you receive $50. This kind of thing is very common nowadays. Yeah. Well, let's get into the heart of your story now and talk about the legal risks that uh, some of these influencers face and why they're being uh, urged or maybe forced to buy insurance policies. What are some of the risks that that they could run into from a, a legal liability standpoint? Yeah. The thing is, they can run into this kind of all typical risks a media company run into or a TV production studio run into. There's defamation, copyright infringement. Actually, the most common kind of legal risks influencers run into is IP infringement of music or artwork. Sometimes, you know, an like influencer just forgot to turn off the Bluetooth speaker 
in the background while they are, you know, showcasing a lipstick. That makes so much sense. But when I read your story, I was really surprised by that, that that's the biggest risk for them is just, you know, or the example that you had as an influencer was recording a video in front of a mural and didn't realize that mural is copyrighted. And by showing it, they were infringing on that. Exactly. Yeah, this is a very interesting example. You know, one broker told me she recently dealt with an insurance claim of one influencer was promoting a car. So the influencer took a picture of herself with the car in front of a nice wall. And that turned out to be a piece of licensed work. And the artist found that out and then filed a claim to both the car company and the influencer. So there's a lot of legal risks with this lucrative economy. And, you know, like sometimes, you know, like if a lot of influencers are in their early or mid-20s or they're on their own, they're not like, you know, like a big media company who have a team of attorneys who are constantly vetting what they say online or giving them advice. You know, if somebody easily get into an argument with somebody online, res- you know, responding to some viral video or, you know, especially in this era, you know, there could be a lot of, you know, controversial Me Too incidents or if somebody accused some underlying video of sexism or racism, there could be, you know, defamation claims and that could be associated with the brand they're working for. On the other hand, you know, there could be, you know, some you know, this influencer was promoting this, for example, a lash serum. And then somebody bought the lash serum and could get an allergic reaction and saying like, I relied on your representation that my lash will grow longer. And and let's um let's let's just I of course know what lash serum is. I'm, <laughs> I'm shaking I'm shaking my head. I do not know. So literally every single day I get asked about my eyelashes. So right now I have no mascara on. All I did was curl them. Why don't you uh, remind me <laughs> or just actually tell me what is lash serum? <laughs> no, I'm okay. Um, I used to use it. You might tell you. Oh, really? No, but it didn't work. I'm assuming it's an eyelash kind of thing. No, it's it's um it's, it's a serum, just like you know what face serum is. You put on your lash and you get thicker lashes. And in the end, maybe in the end, you don't need to wear mascara because it takes a lot of time to do it uh, you know, during the day. So oh, who knew? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> So, you know, consumer can say, hey, I, I love you on Instagram and I relied on what you say. That could be a very sound claim. And then if a consumer bring that claim against the influencer and against the Lash Serum, I mean, the, the brand, the company, there's a lot of legal risks. In fact, last year, Bang Energy filed for bankruptcy after its influencers um, didn't credit the songs used in their promotion videos from Sony and Universal. And let's just linger on that point for a moment here. A company went bankrupt because it hired influencers to essentially advertise for them. And those influencers had an IP strike, I guess, uh, and they weren't able to defend that. That's that's why this year there's this rise of demand for this kind of insurance. You know, like on a side note, you know, insurers told me they have sold five times. Some some insurers said five times as many policies to influencers compared with last year, and there's like a one hundred thirty percent increase in applications from influencers on insurance. So what happened with that company? Well, we we couldn't say you know the lawsuits caused a bankruptcy, but there is a correlation. So the the court ruled that Bank Energy, this energy drink company. Their influencers' marketing video didn't credit the hundreds of songs 
licensed by Sony and Universal. But of course, nobody wants to face that kind of legal risk. Nobody wants to go bankrupt from that. And every big brand is using influencers. That's why they are requiring this kind of insurance. Right. Well, that was the other thing that you did a really good job of highlighting in your story is that the premiums for these policies are way out of reach or way out of whack uh, when you compare what they're getting paid for these brand deals. Can you talk a little bit about that, that like the the price point for these insurance policies, it seems like it's not really where the influencers can afford them in a lot of cases and that, you know, in some cases, the annual premium is more than the, what they would actually be paid by the, the brand itself. Yeah, yeah. So I was told by... Um influencer attorneys and their managers that, for example, you know, like the influencers are required by the brands to buy $2 million insurance or $1 million insurance. And according to insurance brokers, that would cost at least $2,000. And, but then the, the contract, the paycheck they can receive from the brand is only probably like a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars. That seems the math just doesn't make sense. But on the other hand, you know, this new insurance market is not it's, it's still an early stage of the market. It's growing. So not every company is requiring this, this type of insurance, but companies are beginning to realize the importance of it. Yeah, and I think you also talked with one influencer who purchased, who's, I guess was pretty big enough to purchase the insurance on, on their own volition, just because they knew that either you know they wanted to limit their liability risks or they just knew that there were going to be brands that were going to ask for it, so they'd buy it ahead of time, right? Yeah. So I was told by um, influencers, managers that just nobody wants to buy this type of insurance or just not like nobody, but just like if they had a choice, they wouldn't want to buy because it's actual money, actual cost. But, you know, like a lot of some influencers, especially the tech influencers, they are more, you know, savvy about the legal risks and, uh, you know, insurance contracts. So they just want the peace of mind and they get it. And then they don't need to worry about it. If there is a claim, there is a deep pocket that pays for potential legal risks. But on the other hand, the price range of the insurance is huge. But why this is huge? Because the underwriting or the price calculation of this type of insurance is still in the Wild West. Because if you think about like car insurance or, you know, homeowner's insurance, you have decades, if not more, of car accident data. Or, you know, like homeowners, you have decades of hurricanes. But what about for influencers? You know, this is just a new thing. And this, you know, got more famous during the pandemic. So there are not a lot of data to actually determine what is the exact price for this type of risk. And there are not enough data for what are the exact type of risks that will happen for this kind of influencer economy. So it's really hard for insurers, you know, who rely on risk models to determine the price. So the underwriter tell me, you know, they just go and watch, you know, a video on YouTube, you know, on Twitch, um, and de then determining what kind of questions they want to ask influencers. So the, and the, the price determination is on like a case by case basis. I'm just I'm, I'm imagining a, an insurance underwriter going on Twitch and just watching Twitch all day. And that's that's their job. That seems like a, an unusual day at the office. And they're paid to do that. And, 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 and it's really interesting. I mean, like, I mean, they have to stay there for a long time, but but they like it, you know, you know, like they watch some interesting videos, learn about new things. So one of the other interesting details in your story that you mentioned is that it seems like the insurance companies are shying away from certain types of influencers, that there are certain genres. Can you get into that just a little bit and which ones they, they don't like working with? They don't like working with certain kinds. Insurers generally they don't want to cover um, influencers who promote weight loss tea because we don't know people 
we actually have lose weight because of certain things. It, de- it not just depends on the tea or the pill or whatever. They also don't like people who do a lot of like crypto endorsements. It's kind of risky there. And also they, a lot of these influencer media liability policy, they have um, crypto exclusion to bar coverage of that. They also don't, don't like, you know, people who comment on like stock market or predict the market moves. That could be very risky because nobody can actually predict that and people can rely on their representation to make investments. There's, um, there's a lot of exposure. They're also um, not a big fan of like true crime series. So these are, you know, the, those like um, shows or murder stories, like uh, shows adapted from the real life murder stories like Love and Death. Yeah, it's like pe- people who go online and try to solve, uh, you know, unsolved murders or something. Exactly, exactly. So they don't, they don't like people who predict who the real murderer is because these are real life incidents and that can give rise to like defamation, defamation claims. So there, there's a lot of risk on that as well. So I think the insurers, they are still trying to figure out the kind of risks uh, at the moment. Um, so finally, t- let's take a look at the big picture here. I, when I was reading your story, I kept thinking, is this a good sign for the influencer economy or is this a bad sign? And what I mean by that is I thought, well, it seems like it's a good sign because it means that the influencer economy is maturing. It's getting more professional. It's getting big enough that it needs this kind of insurance. That seems like uh, it would bode well for the future. On the other side of the coin, though, if influencers can't afford the premiums on these insurance policies, it seems like there's a, a really hard ceiling in how big they can get because if you can't be insured, you can't really grow as a business. Uh, what do you think? Do you think this is good or bad for this uh, new cottage industry? I think it's generally a good sign that companies and influencers and their insurers are getting more sophisticated of the potential legal risks arising from this big economy. They are trying to learn more about it. Because you know, no company wants to face wants to go bankrupt. No com- company wants to face those legal risks. But you know, insurance is only one way of solving this. You know, maybe it's a good sign an influencer should get a very good attorney and just to negotiate with the brand well about what kind of contract they should sign, how to push back on different kind of you know brand requirements. On the other hand, you know, like this is still developing. Maybe in the end. Some, some companies may be willing to share some of the premiums influencers have to pay. Because to be honest, like a $2,000 premium for $1 million insurance, that's not, that's kind of, that's just pretty low for $1 million insurance. But it's just really just like how the influencer and their brands can work together to figure that out, to, to, to shoulder, to face the potential risk and shoulder the cost. And that is something that is very early and remains to be seen. All right. Well, that was Daphne Zhang uh, talking about uh, influencers and insurance. Daphne, that was so fascinating. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban 
on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.